When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, What do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my Lord, O King. Father God, we thank you for your word. We want to live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We pray as we examine this scripture that our hearts would be lifted out to you, that we would have anything in our lives that is contrary uh, to your scripture, to be subdued under the feet of King Jesus. And Father, that you would be glorified in our continued worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over the past two weeks, we've been looking at various tests of loyalty. And in this chapter, we're going to be seeing that loyalty, true loyalty, can be obscured. And false loyalty can be paraded and honored. In fact, uh, it is so successfully uh, done so that Ziba is able to deceive even a good man uh, like uh, David. Now, we discover later that Ziba is actually a very selfish, lying, conniving, grasping, small-hearted man. And uh, yet, in this chapter, he has the audacity to project his own uh, attitudes and his own character onto Mephibosheth and to accuse Mephibosheth falsely of being the one who is disloyal to David and to country. Uh, everything seems upside down in the first 19 verses of this chapter. And of course, that's the way it often is in life, isn't it? Uh, the American media portrays tyrants and those who are undermining and destroying our nation as being the freedom lovers, the people who have the interests of the people in mind. And they portray the constitutionalists as being hateful bigots. It's very, very weird. Uh, this past week, I read a post by someone who said, Obama is not just loyal to America. He is loyal to the American people. The loyalty that matters and that we want is not bumper sticker loyalty or flag-waving loyalty. We want loyalty to the well-being of the people that make up America, or at least the great majority of them. Obama is loyal to me. He is loyal to you. He is loyal to the American people. That's one million times better than wearing a flag and pin. Loyalty, what does it mean? Now, that's what we've been trying to investigate in this mini-series within the book of, uh, of Samuel. And in the first 19 verses of this chapter, who is loyal and who is not loyal is somewhat mystifying, at least it would have been to those uh, who were living at that time. I think we've got the advantage of the Scripture uh, giving us hints and telling us what's going on. We've got the advantage of, of hindsight as well because we've got chapter 19. They don't yet. Uh, but we do still need the Scripture uh, to be able to see clearly and to be able to evaluate the accusations and the counter-accusations of disloyalty and to understand our people really blowing air uh, when they claim to be the most loyal and the people who are the most faithful to the interests uh, of America. And uh, we need to evaluate current events by the Scripture. Now, I want you to consider the use of the term loyal in the following statements that I have read uh, this past week. Here is the first statement. The members of the log cabin Republicans are loyal Republicans. Is that true? Are those sodomite activists truly loyal? Here's another one. Pro-choice and a loyal Republican, Susan Coleman will attend her party's national convention. Or consider this headline. Muslims are the most loyal American religious group. The most loyal. Very interesting claim. 
And it's a claim that's being uh, made on New York Times, Newsmax, Yahoo News, Democrats for Progress, Gallup, and other organizations. Back when Elena Kagan was being nominated to the Supreme Court, a Republican Lindsey Graham supported her saying, she's a loyal American, very patriotic. Is that true? And how would we know? How would we know? Seems that the word loyal means different things to different people. Uh, one more example, and this one is an accusation. In an article titled, Are Extremist Tea Party Republicans the Enemy and Traitors to America? Uh, R. Blackbird said, Tea Party Republicans are selfish, power-hungry, hateful of the poor, disloyal to the nation and its people, dishonest, avaricious, scornful of the nation's history. I just had to laugh out loud when I, when I read that part. Scornful to the dignity of its institutions, its standards of political morality, and its vision of advancement for all people. Wow, seems like gazebas are flourishing in our society. And I want to highlight eight characteristics of Zeba's false loyalty this morning. And the first is that false loyalty can be very generous with other people's money. Uh, generosity is often seen as an aspect of loyalty, and so it makes perfect sense that you're going to have false generosity if there is going to be false loyalty. Uh, look at verse 1. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Wow, that was a welcome sight to David. Uh, he had to flee so quickly that they didn't have time to bring anything with them. They just dropped everything and ran. And so Ziba's a real hero. He is bringing well-needed supplies. But here's a good question to ask. Who did those supplies belong to? Who owned the donkeys? Who owned the bread? Now, Ziba implies by giving it, he doesn't say it outright, but he implies by giving these things that he owned all of those things. But we find out in chapter 19 who the true owner of those things was. It was Mephibosheth. Uh, yes, Mephibosheth. And so it's very easy to, for Ziba to be generous with someone else's property. He is giving what is not his own to give. And this is really at the heart of what is wrong with socialism, all forms of socialism. Socialism claims to be loyal to the interests of the people while robbing those people and engaging in inflation. And socialists claim to be generous with resources while very rarely sacrificing their own personal money. It's almost always the money of other people that they are quote-unquote generous with. In fact, at its roots, socialism is based on envy and theft, not on big-heartedness and generosity. Now, that may seem like an audacious claim to, to make, but let me see if I can back it up. If you look over the last 100 years at the biggest socialists around the world, you will find that many of those people are fabulously wealthy. And while they do redistribute wealth, rarely do they redistribute their own uh, personal wealth. They're like Ziba. And it's true of the socialists of our own country. When you look at some of the big name uh, socialists, whether it's a Biden or a Al Gore or somebody else, you often found they, they give very, very little of their own money. <clears throat> In, uh, from 1998 through 2007, it was a nine-year span, uh, uh, Biden gave anywhere from a low of 0.06% of his income in one year to 0.31% of his income in the highest year of giving. That means in his best year, uh, he was giving less than one-third of 1%. Every one of you gives more money than he does, even though he's probably making more money than you do. You're giving more money, at least if you're fulfilling your vows that you took, membership vows of tithing. But... Um, there's a book by Arthur C. Brooks called Who Really Cares that extensively documents that liberals who have the reputation of being very, very generous are typically the stingiest people of all. 
For example, those who attend church in America every week without fail give three and a half times more. That's 350% more than liberal secularists give. And the liberal secularists might say, well, yeah, of course, they, they're members of a church, they're paying for a service. You can't be counting that. But even if you exclude all of the giving that these people give to church and to Christian ministries, Christians, uh, conservatives still far, far outgive in terms of what they give to secular and political, conservative political uh, causes. They give far more than uh, the, the typical um, uh, liberal secularist does. And so liberal generosity is an illusion. It's a counterfeit with very few notable exceptions. And I do admit that there are some very, very generous um, uh, liberals. Another organization has documented the same thing as the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and they reported that the Bible Belt regions of the country, which also happen to be the most conservative politically uh, regions of the country, uh, that they are by far the most generous with their money, especially in the South, with the most non-Christian uh, regions of the world, uh, uh, of America, uh, giving the least, uh, least amount of money in uh, New England states filling the last six slots out of the 50 states. And when you compare it in terms of conservative versus liberal, the same is true. The most socialistic states have the least per capita charity, and the least socialistic states have the most per capita uh, giving. Now, of course, uh, they, they give a spin to this. A socialist Alan Wolf, political science professor at Boston College, said that the reason for these statistics is that liberals, liberal secularists, love to give through taxes. They're very generous. It's just a different kind of giving. And they say it's a far more fair kind of giving. And let me give you just one sample quote from him. He said, they view the tax money they're paying not as something that's forced upon them, but as a recognition that they belong with everyone else, that they're citizens in the common good. I think people here believe that when they pay their taxes, they're being altruistic, unquote. You know what altruistic means. It's totally unselfish um, concern for the welfare of others with no self-interest. But even that is demonstrated to be an absolute uh, lie. The most liberal millionaires are the most likely to use every loophole in the tax codes to try not to pay uh, their taxes. Not only are they not generous in charity, they're not generous in taxes. In fact, they use the tax system uh, to really uh, disadvantage the middle class and to advantage the poor and uh, the upper classes. They're not being altruistic. Now, I don't blame them for reducing their taxes. I reduce my taxes as much as I can, too, because uh, I believe it's a bad form of giving or it's a bad form of robbing me is really what it amounts to. But I'm just criticizing them for their hypocrisy in the way that they speak. Uh, Alan Wolf, even though he has a Ph.D. in political science, I think he illustrates the truism that George Orwell said many, many years ago that some ideas are so stupid that only intellectuals can believe them. <laughs> uh, but this first point, I think, was so graphically illustrated last week in an article in the uh, San Jose Mercury News. They highlighted Cindy Vinson and Tom Washura, uh, both of whom were avid Obama supporters and very avid Obamacare supporters. They did a lot to promote and advertise and, and, and uh, advance it. And last week's article says this about those two. They were floored last week when they opened their bills. Their policies were being replaced with pricier plans that conformed to all the requirements of the new health care law. Vincent of San Jose will pay $1,800 more a year for an individual policy, while Washura of Portola Valley will cough up almost $10,000 more for insurance for his family of four. I was laughing at Boehner until the mail came today, Washura said, referring to House Speaker John Boehner, who is leading the Republican charge to defund Obamacare. I really don't like the Republican tactics, but at least now I can understand why they are so, and he uses a vulgarism here, uh, about this. When you take $10,000 out of my family's pocket each year, that's otherwise disposable income or retirement savings that will not be going into our local economy. Of course, 
I want people to have health care, Vincent said. I just didn't realize that I would be the one who was going to pay for it personally. <laughs> what an admission, okay? He's basically saying, yeah, I'd love for people to have health care so long as I don't have to contribute to it, you know, myself. And I love the comment that somebody made on this article about the other lady, uh, Cindy. One person said, Cindy was feeling real generous until she saw that the money being spent was hers. Until then, being generous with other people's money was easy. Now, I've spent more time on this first point because our world is filled with socialistic zebas who want to be seen as generous and loyal, but who really are involved in theft, envy, and selfishness. They are just as small-hearted, selfish, and grasping as zeba was. So don't let your friends guilt you into supporting and, and uh, voting for, or even receive, being on the receiving end of uh, the, the kinds of um, socialistic causes that are out there. I've had friends call me stingy because I refuse to be a part of the Zeba campaigns of the past century. But I guarantee you, uh, I contribute a far greater percentage of my income than my liberal friends do. Uh, uh, far greater. Uh, those campaigns from FDR to the present do not demonstrate loyalty and generosity. They demonstrate treason and theft that flows from the heart of people who are really stingy. So when some of my friends, uh, my liberal friends, start giving more generously of their own finances, like the Bible calls us to do, then I might take them a little bit more seriously. Okay, the second characteristic of Zeba's false loyalty is it was quick to hide and disparage the true loyalty of others. Verse 2 begins, And the king said to Zeba, What do you mean to do with these? So Zeba said, dot, 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 and he kept completely silent about the fact that Mephibosheth had wanted to go with David and had wanted to bless David on his journey. Now, we don't even find out about, there's a very credible other side of the story when we get to chapter 19, but he, David doesn't get the other side of the story here. Uh, it's deliberately hidden by Zeba. There is not the slightest hint that Mephibosheth is a loyal subject. On the contrary, Zeba slanders him. Now, we'll get to the slander later, but I just think it's uh, worthwhile for us to examine our own hearts to see if we've engaged in this same problem of minimizing and hiding the contributions and the actions of other people because we want to look good. <clears throat> According to Jim Morrall, the professor of management at Florida State University, 31% of employees surveyed reported that their boss was prone to exaggerate his or her accomplishments and downplay the contributions of others. And it's not just in, in the, uh, you know, amongst bosses and things like that. You, you see it in the workplace. It's pervasive in, in the church, among pastors, among authors, in many different areas uh, of life. Uh, they feel bad if you are noticing, not noticing their contributions, you're noticing the contributions of other people, and they feel this impulse to ignore or to minimize what those other people are doing, even though some of those other people's contributions have actually helped their own success. And this tendency flows from insecurity, wanting to look better than we really are, pride, fear, and a lack of a servant's heart. And if you tend to struggle with this sin, I would highly, highly recommend that you start reading and you start memorizing and meditating upon the book of Philippians. That is an amazing antidote to this counterfeit form of, of, of loyalty. In the book of Philippians, Paul seeks to help us to put on the self-sacrificing attitudes of Jesus Christ in every area of life and to enter more and more into the supernatural joy of the Lord that Dan was talking about earlier in those same areas of life. Now, the Holy Spirit is the most, uh, the, the greatest examples, maybe the way to word it, of, uh, of uh, lifting up 
and, and, and noticing and glorifying the contributions, the things of others. For example, he's, he's constantly pointing to, to Jesus. He never points to himself. And Jesus is constantly glorifying and pointing to the Father without the feeling the need to be glorified. And the Father is glorifying the Son. But I think it's the Holy Spirit who in an amazing way shows this kind of an attitude of being more concerned about the interests of others lifting up and acknowledging others and here's the point if you are filled with the Holy Spirit you too are going to delight in praising the contributions of others highlighting what they're doing and you're going to be grieved when you see other people's contributions being minimized or slandered or, or completely uh, ignored and so if you're filled with the Spirit the characteristics of the Holy Spirit including his loyalty and his concern for others will more and more characterize your life he will give you true loyalty okay the third characteristic of Ziba's false loyalty was the illusion of compassion. Take a look at the rest of verse 2. So Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer food for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Now this does indeed look like compassion. On the surface, it looks just like compassion. Uh, I read from the poem last week that said, Pity weeps and runs away, Compassion comes to help and stay, and Ziba has come to help and stay, right? So am I being unfair to Ziba when I claim that he has a false compassion? I don't think so. In chapter 19, the author contrasts the true compassion of Mephibosheth with the false compassion of Ziba on several levels, and I'm just going to give you five that I think are fairly clear. First, where Ziba was using David for self-advancement, Mephibosheth told David that he didn't really want anything out of David. He was just very, very glad that David was safe. In fact, he said he didn't even deserve the things that David had given to him uh, previously. He had no claim whatsoever uh, upon uh, David. In other words, it wasn't for what he could get out of it. He loved David. He grieved over the fact that David had lost his throne. So he showed true compassion. Ziba shows compassion only when there is something in it for him. Second, Ziba abandoned Mephibosheth and left that cripple helpless. Well, that's not compassion. But here he shows compassion to David. And here's the point. If you are very, very selective in who you show compassion to, and you can be compassionate to one person and cruel to another person, you're more like Ziba than you are like Mephibosheth. You need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to transform you. If Ziba truly had compassion, he would have had compassion on both men. Third, Ziba is quite willing to take all Mephibosheth's property, which we will be seeing shortly, is theft on David's part. He had no business giving that property to, uh, to Ziba. But Ziba is quite willing to be a participant in that. Whereas Mephibosheth is not grasping in the least. In fact, when David offers to give back to Mephibosheth half of his own property, he offers to give it back to him, what Mephibosheth tells David is, oh, rather, let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. So compassion is not consistent with Ziba's grasping character, but it's totally consistent with Mephibosheth's humility and contentment. Here's one of the ways you can examine uh, the, the, the legitimacy uh, of compassion. Does it also have the other fruit of the Spirit that, that surround compassion? I think it's one of the ways you can examine it. Fourth, where Ziba gave other people's goods to David, Mephibosheth was the one who had really given those goods to David, and Ziba take, took credit for it. Fifth, where Ziba focused on the opportunity, Mephibosheth focused on the person. And chapter 19 makes the inspired comment that Mephibosheth spent, he didn't just claim to do this, the, the inspired commentary says, Mephibosheth spent the entire time of David's absence from Jerusalem mourning, and he didn't take care of his feet, he didn't trim his mustache, he didn't uh, wash his clothes. He truly was grieving. He wasn't doing that so David could see him. David was gone. And so this whole time, 
he truly mourned for David. And so when you see the compassion of Mephibosheth side by side with the compassion uh, of Ziba, you see Ziba's compassion falls short. It was pretty good counterfeit, but it was false. And since we saw last week that compassion and loyalty are tied up in each other, false compassion points to false loyalty. Now that's the meaning of the text. What about an application? Well, compassion has been at the heart of the arguments in favor of Obamacare and all of the other forms of socialism right from the beginning. Anyone who opposes Obamacare is accused of being a heartless person who does not care for the poor. This past February, Bob Morris said, Ron Paul lacks compassion, humanity, and common sense. But is it true that the Ron Pauls of this society are heartless and the liberals who promote welfare are the ones who have true compassion and have the interests of the people at, at, at stake? I think you could just look at Ron Paul and some of the videos that have come up and you can show it. But I want to look at the bigger picture, not just at him. Any number of books thoroughly refute the charge that conservatives lack compassion and liberals have it. While liberalism may seem compassionate in rhetoric, and I will be the first one to admit there are some compassionate liberals out there. I'm not, I'm not saying everybody's this way. But generally speaking, liberalism does not improve the state of the poor. It perpetuates it. In fact, it makes the state of the poor far, far worse if you look at the statistics ever since the time of FDR. Uh, socialism has made it far worse. I would highly recommend that you read E. Calvin Beisner's book, Prosperity and Poverty, The Compassionate Use of Resources in a Scarce World. And what it demonstrates, I think, very cogently, is what it takes is a small state with a totally free market to maximize uh, the, 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 the ministry to those who really need our compassion. Or come to the book study that uh, Rodney's going to be teaching on Tuesday on uh, Hayek's book, Road to Serfdom. Um, a great little book. Or read... Marvin Lasky's book, The Tragedy of American Compassion, which brilliantly shows how destructive all of the socialistic plans have been in America. To the poor, uh, you know, not just to America as a whole, and how it's actually been destructive of true compassion. True compassion is built on voluntarism makes personal sacrifices, opens up opportunities for the victim rather than dependence, and many, many other contrasts. So just as with Ziba, our nation's ideas on compassion are just as false as their notions of loyalty. The fourth characteristic is that false loyalty is built on falsity and continues to engage in falsity. Ziba's statement in verse 3 is an utter lie. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. Now, of course, we don't discover that it's an utter lie until chapter 19. Uh, the lie here is pretty convincing to David. He's deceived by it. But Ziba has to continue lying in order to maintain this facade of loyalty. And let me give you some applications. If your goal is not to repent of sin, but rather to hide your sin, to pretend to be righteous, then automatically deceitfulness will need to continue to grow. Of necessity, it will need to grow. False loyalty can only be buttressed and sustained through more falsity. And that's why our nation is pervasively a nation of deceit. You see it in the media everywhere. I mean, all the mainstream media have just become propaganda uh, machines. But we need to be so careful that we ourselves do not engage in propaganda and exaggerations. Let me apply this problem in a different area. If a person who views porn does not immediately repent and confess his sin, what happens is he starts hiding his sin, but the very act of hiding it necessitates more and more falsity. It's just the nature of the way sin works. This is why all addicts are always notorious liars. They have to be, at least if they're hiding their addictions. They, they, they have to be. You, you find a cocaine addict, don't trust him further than you can throw him because 
uh, all across the nation, you'll see this, any counselor that you talk to, that this person not only needs to deal with his uh, addiction under 24-7 accountability, but he needs to put on homework that will destroy this impulse to lying. Otherwise, he'll never be restored to integrity. But it's not just addicts. Anyone who makes a pretense at loyalty is going to find lying becoming easier and easier. And let me illustrate that. United States senators take the following oath of office. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And that's exactly what Oliver Wendell Holmes Supreme Court Justice's book on, you know, common law was all about. It was evasion. It was uh, trying to get around the clear intent of the Constitution. But they swear to support and defend it without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office in which I am about to enter, so help me God. Now, first of all, I don't even understand how atheists can take that vow and say, so help me God, when they don't believe in God. But let's just put that aside. Maybe they got some technical way around that, and they don't have to say, so help me God. I don't know. But senators and congressmen perjure themselves and violate that oath of office within weeks of getting into office by proposing bills and voting for bills that they know, they, they have to know, that our founding fathers would have hated. Their whole work is built upon a lie. And they have to continue to lie to the public to make it seem like loyalty. Now, occasionally, it'll slip out that they know what they're doing is unconstitutional. Uh, They were getting so bold in the years leading up to the war between the states that some of these congressmen admitted that they despised the Constitution and that they had no intention of being limited by it. Uh, One congressman threw a Constitution on the ground and trampled on it. Uh, William Wells Brown said... I would have the Constitution torn in shreds and scattered to the four winds of heaven. Let us destroy the Constitution and build on its ruins the temple of liberty. And he and his colleagues did exactly that. They were trying to destroy the Constitution. They routinely voted for things that they knew violated the original intent of the Constitution. So what was going on is they're knowingly lying uh, when they take their oath of office. And there are some people almost that bold today, but usually what they do is they still feel like they have to at least give a pretense of supporting the Constitution. And so you have uh, somebody like, like um, Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, telling Congress that they need to support her bills to restrict gun ownership because they have vowed to uphold the Constitution. And you you think, this this is weird. This this Constitution destroyer is saying, you've got to vote for my bills because you have sworn to uphold the Constitution when her bills are undermining the Second Amendment. Very, very odd. Another liberal castigated the Republicans for violating their oath of office by not approving the budget several weeks ago. Um, And that, too, was very odd. Their argument is that the Constitution says that Congress has the responsibility to pay all debts. And so they kind of turn things upside down. Uh, They're saying, you just have to vote for whatever thing is out there. Otherwise, you're not paying for your debts. So the very people who routinely are violating the Constitution have the audacity of saying, if you don't vote for this, you're violating the Constitution that you're sworn uh, to uphold. But it makes sense. Once you're committed to a false loyalty to the Constitution, which is exactly what you are committed to, if you treat the Constitution as a living document, you're going to find falsity everywhere. It becomes bolder and bolder, and that's the next point. The fifth characteristic of Zeba's false loyalty is that it spreads. Now, it started with Saul and his administration. It spread to Zeba, uh, his servant. And in verses 5 and following, you see that it uh, is definitely taken hold of Shimei and others who were a part of the Saulite clan who fiercely are defending this false loyalty. Birds of a feather tend to flock together. And so I do not think that it's by accident that David says in verse 3, and where is your master's son? Now, verse 1 says that at this time, Ziba, Ziba's master is Mephibosheth. 
It's not Saul. So it seems a little odd that, 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 that David would say, where is your master's son, instead of where is your master? If he'd say, where is your master, you'd think, okay, he's referring to Mephibosheth. But commentators point out that David says this because he is suspicious at this point of the whole Salide uh, dynasty, and he has a hard time believing that a faithful servant like Ziva of Saul is going to care at all that he is, that he is fleeing. Uh, commentators point out that um, this whole first half of the chapter revolves around the continuing threat and influence of Saul. But whatever it was that was in David's mind as to why in the world he words it this way, the author takes that statement because it fits his purpose of showing that Ziba was more like Saul than he was like David. Ziba is still obeying and imitating his master Saul, and he's uh, more like of that master than he is of, um, of Mephibosheth. Now, of course, we saw that Saul definitely had false loyalty to God and country and the Bible's laws, and so all of this is kind of a long, long roundabout explanation of um, the principle that loyalty tends to breed false loyalty in others. And we see this in so many spheres of life in America. Uh, Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes that I mentioned to you uh, he hated the Constitution, it's pretty obvious. And his decisions frequently were unconstitutional, and in terms of comparison, I'll liken him to Saul. But Holmes has to make his treason look like loyalty before other people will buy into it. So he wrote a brilliant book called The Common Law, which gave the philosophical basis for turning the Constitution into a wax nose that you can turn any which way you want. It's basically a justification for ignoring inconvenient uh, aspects of the Constitution. And even a more amazing attempt at the, the same thing is David Strauss's recent book, The Living Constitution. Now, if you read that book and you just pull out the statements that show how much he despises the Constitution, he looks like a jerk. He looks like a really bad guy. Uh, statements like uh, this one, the Constitution is a hindrance, a relic that keeps us from making progress and prevents our society from working in the way that it should. But when you read the whole argument of Strauss, boy, it's a little bit more convincing. He makes it almost look like this was the intention of the Founding Fathers right from the beginning. And so you do find that those who are disloyal feel like they need to convince others that what they are doing is really loyalty, and the pattern spreads, and certainly it has spread in the judicial sphere. Now, since almost every congressman, senator, and federal judge ignores the original intent of the Constitution, some people think it's just bizarre for you to even bother asking them, where do you find this uh, justification for what you're doing in the Constitution? Uh, Glenn Beck uh, played a, a clip of a man asking Nancy Pelosi, Madam Speaker, where specifically does the Constitution grant Congress the authority to enact an individual health insurance mandate? And her response, she mocks him as if he's an idiot for even bringing up the question. And she asks, are you serious? Are you serious? I mean, that's how pervasively uh, the, uh, the false loyalty has spread in our nation that when a person is standing for true loyalty, he's treated like he is a nutcase. But it illustrates how quickly false loyalty can spread in a body. Denomination after denomination of churches has become liberal for the, exactly the same reason. You've got uh, elders and, and ministers who join that denomination, and they swear to uphold the Constitution and the doctrines of that denomination, and they don't believe those doctrines. Uh, Gary North wrote a big, fat book uh, called... Um, Crossed fingers, yes. How the liberals captured the Presbyterian church or something along those lines. And uh, he, he, he points out, basically, the conservatives were so nice, they just felt like they couldn't discipline these liberals who were even denying, you know, foundational doctrines. They couldn't discipline them. And over time, uh, the liberals spread their doctrines throughout uh, the denominations and through the seminaries till finally the conservatives became a persecuted minority within them. And what he documents in the Presbyterian Church you'll see in the other mainline uh, denominations as well. Now, let's apply this to the home. 
When dads profess to love God's law in the church, but at home they routinely break it, kids pick up on that and they imitate dad or they imitate mom. They begin to develop two lives as well, a life that professes one thing in front of the parents and professes a totally different thing in front of others. Why in the world would they do that? Well, they do that because you're a great role model. You're, you're, they're imitating you. You are one of the most powerful influences in their lives. In front of Mephibosheth, or an elder, or a parent, that young person uh, may be very loyal. But when that young Ziba leaves the presence of Mephibosheth, or the parent, or the elder, and they stand in front of a David, he or she has no problem kicking Mephibosheth in the, in the stomach. And I think this is so vividly illustrated in Facebook. Now, some people must not know that their posts are public. They think, I've only got friends uh, that I trust, and they post these things. They have not put their settings, you know, this only goes to my friends. So I have seen some astonishing things from friends that I know, and they're being two-faced. Of course, when I confront them on it, they are just like embarrassed beyond belief that I would have even noticed that. But see, what's going on is they are Zebas. They've been influenced by Saul to be double-faced, and they're influencing others to be double-faced in the same way, depending on whether they're in front of a, a Mephibosheth or in front of a, a David. Disloyalty spreads. Satan and his demons make sure that it spreads. It must be nipped in the bud or it will spread. The sixth characteristic is that false loyalty destroys real loyalty. And actually, it's kind of hinted at in the last point, uh, what we've dealt with. But um, point six shows that it becomes harder and harder to be truly loyal. In the second part of verse three, Ziba betrays the very person that made him successful, Mephibosheth. And in the next point, we'll see that he succeeds in getting David to do a disloyal thing. Now, if it hadn't been for Mephibosheth, Ziba would be nowhere. But in one hasty word, he destroys a relationship. It's not actually even a very good lie. I mean, could anybody really take it seriously that with Absalom coming into power, taking over the throne, that he's going to elevate Mephibosheth to be the king? Uh, it's not credible at all. But it doesn't take a lot to convince somebody of something if a truth and faithfulness and loyalty are, are, are no longer important. I was listening to one congressman being interviewed about where in the Constitution it gave him the authority to approve the health care bill that he voted for, and I transcribed from that uh, what he said. He just brushed that aside and he says, I don't care about the Constitution on this issue. I care more about the people who are dying every day who don't have health care. The interviewer asked again, well, where in the Constitution does it give you the authority to? And the congressman interrupted and said, I don't know, but at the end of the day, I want to bring insurance to every person who lives in this country. So here is a person who, in the name of loyalty to the people, destroys the very foundations of truth and loyalty in his own life and makes it impossible to trust him. He's a man I would not trust with anything. If you can so flippantly violate your solemn oath of office to uphold and defend the Constitution, then turn around and say, well, I don't care what the Constitution says about that. You can't trust him with your daughter, with your watch, or anything else. But it's not just the Democrats. I have the same problem with the Republicans. I talked at great length with one senator and her staff about 12 ways in which the fairness, internet fairness tax was unconstitutional and actually pointed out one place where it's specifically mentioned as being disallowed in the Constitution. They could not answer me on any of these questions. Any, they, she referred me to different staff. They couldn't answer me. And yet she goes ahead and votes for this anyway. Well, if she can deliberately violate the Constitution on that vote, I don't care how conservative she is on any of her other votes, uh, she cannot be trusted. She has destroyed any ability for me to trust her in office, even though she's really better than her opponents. She can talk all she wants about loyalty to American values. As far as I'm concerned, she lacks authenticity. When former DNC chairman... Uh, Howard Dean was asked about its constitutionality. He says, I don't think it's unconstitutional, but I don't care whether it is or not. When he says that, he is destroying any ability for people in the future to trust him. It's no wonder that other countries do not trust America. I don't trust America. Okay? Disloyalty has become so pervasive 
that true loyalty has been evaporated. And you could get similar stories. I had to throw away tons of stories. Uh, similar stories from senators, congressmen, judges, Doug Schulman, former uh, head of the IRS, from heads of other agencies. And at the very time that they are defending their false loyalty as being true loyalty, of necessity they have to destroy true loyalty. Okay, They have to trash it. The two go hand in hand. The seventh characteristic of Zeba's false loyalty is that it destroyed a covenant relationship and actually had the potential of destroying Mephibosheth. Now, I doubt that Zeba expected Mephibosheth to even come out of this alive. Verse 4 begins, So the king said to Zeba, Here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. Now, David had shown extremely good judgment and humility and good character up until this point, but all commentators agree he is showing extremely poor character on this point and extremely poor judgment when he does this. There has been no trial, no witnesses, no cross-examination, nothing. For David to give away Mephibosheth's property to Ziba is nothing but pure statist theft. There's no other word for it. Uh, he later on realizes he made a huge mistake. He only partially uh, corrects that uh, mistake of his executive orders, but it's totally unbiblical, the executive orders that he gives. There's no foundation for it. So with one sentence from David's mouth, he destroys his sacred covenant with Mephibosheth and destroys a man's life. And there are so many people's lives that are being destroyed with a stroke of a pen in the name of loyalty. And commentators point out how the first 19 verses of this chapter show example after example of how loyalty is confused, misascribed, and turned upside down with ease. And if it could happen with David, it can certainly happen with us today. We have got to be on guard, not just against the grosser forms of disloyalty like um, uh, divorce and perjury and theft. We've got to put off everything that leads to that. People can pride themselves on never having even considered a divorce, but they have broken their vows in the way in which they treat each other routinely on a day-by-day -day basis. It's a form of false loyalty that has destroyed intimacy and taken the heart out of a covenant relationship. And so what God does in Revelation, He calls us to return to the first works so that we can reestablish the first love. David should not have so easily broken covenant with Mephibosheth. The last characteristic of Ziba's false loyalty is that it is man-centered. In verse 4, he gives the true reason for why he has brought these things to David. Take a look at the second sentence. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find a favor in your sight, my Lord, O King. He wanted David's favor, and David's favor pays off. It was lucrative. And this man-centered attitude of currying favor and trying to get others to serve our interests drives so much of politics, even of citizens. I can't believe how many conservatives are quite willingly signing up for benefits. They don't believe in them, but they sign up for them. They're not conservatives, truly. Maybe in, 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 in principle, but not in practice. They're liberals. The false loyalties that we have seen across the landscape will not be reversed until we Christians become God-centered in all of our thinking. Now, I frequently tell people who are getting marriage counseling that unless their motivation is to please God, their motivation is going to be, they're going to let them down. It's going to be hard for them to do the things that are necessary to do to solve their marriage problems. If your motivation is to get rid of the pain, that's going to let you down because there are going to be times where God's calling you to fix these problems. It's going to be more pain to fix it than it would be to let the marriage continue to be a mess or even more painful than having the divorce itself. If your motivation is happiness, and somebody alluded to it earlier, maybe it was Dan or, or maybe, I don't know who alluded to it earlier, but if your motivation is happiness, it's going to let you down because God wants us to be more interested in holiness than happiness, and sometimes those two are mutually exclusive. <clears throat> I think uh, this is so well illustrated in Larry Crabb's book, uh, Inside Out. Now, I don't recommend the book, but I do think he hit on a problem of being very man-centered in counseling in uh, one of his chapters. And I'll just read it here. 
He said, a man opened a counseling session with an urgent request. I want to feel better quick. I paused for a moment, then replied, I suggest you get a case of your favorite alcoholic beverage, find some cooperative women, and go to the Bahamas for a month. Now it was his turn to pause. He stared at me, looking puzzled, then asked, Are you a Christian? <laughs> Why do you ask? Well, your advice doesn't sound very biblical. It's the best I can do, given your request. If you really want to feel good right away and get rid of any unpleasant emotion, then I don't recommend following Christ. Drunkenness, immoral pleasures, and vacations will work far better. Not for long, of course, but in the short run, they'll give you what you want. He was basically asking that man if he was willing to make a decision to pick up his cross and follow Christ no matter what, or if he was only going to put the minimum amount of labor and effort until he felt a little bit better, which is a humanistic, a man-centered motive. Just as that man got a lousy answer because he asked a lousy question, if we have man-centered motivations in our loyalties, we're going to have lousy, lousy outcomes. When the going gets tough, our loyalty to marriage will fail. When disagreements arise, our loyalty to the church will dissolve. When the state becomes corrupt, we'll ditch all loyalty in the civil sphere. But on the other hand, when we embrace the principles of loyalty that we looked at last week, then our desire to be fiercely loyal to God is going to color all of our other loyalties and is going to transform them. And so because we are loyal to God, we're going to be loyal to our wives because God, loyalty to God demands it, and it defines it, and it limits it. Now, on the other hand, um, the same loyalty is going to keep us from making an idol out of any loyalty, any relationship, and um, it, it's going to help us to be faithful to God, not simply to the expectations of others, whether it's party or family or anything else. In fact, fierce loyalty to God will keep us from fudging on our loyalties uh, in, well, like recently happened. Uh, we've been praying about this uh, reformed uh, leader, very famous man who, um, very inappropriate relationship. We don't know how far it went, but it was a long, sustained relationship uh, that he had in romantic relationship. But it's so critical that we not ignore this issue of true loyalty, and that's why we've been spending so much time on it. If that famous church leader, who I respect very, very much, if he could break loyalty with his wife, then I would say, you better pray for your leaders, and you better pray for yourselves. We need to cry out to the Lord, please, Lord, keep me from stumbling. Keep my heart safe in you. I want to cling to the cross. I know without you I can do nothing. I know I could fall so easily. Please, Lord, protect me. The moment the temptation to negotiate our way into a lesser loyalty than being totally sold out to Christ comes along, we need to get rid of it. Let me conclude with a parable that illustrates the dangers of playing the game of loyalty by the world's standards. This writer said, I once heard a story about a hunter who went deep into the woods in search of a bear. It seems that he wanted to shoot one and skin it for its coat. After a long wait, the hunter finally had a huge brown bear in his sight. Wrapping his finger slowly around the trigger and holding the barrel steady, he aimed for the center of the hulking animal's very large forehead. Just as the hunter was preparing to squeeze the trigger, the bear turned around and, catching the hunter by surprise, said in a soft voice, Wait, let's talk this thing over. Isn't it better to talk than to shoot? The hunter was so surprised that he lowered his gun. The bear thanked him and said, Now, what is it that you want? Can't we negotiate? Well, the hunter replied, Actually, all I want is a fur coat. Good, the bear said. All I want is a meal. As the two sat down to negotiate, the hunter dropped his guard and laid his rifle down on a big gray rock. Then the two went into the forest to talk. After a while, the bear came back out alone. Apparently, the negotiations had been successful. The bear had a full stomach, and the hunter had his fur coat. <laughs> you negotiate with a bear, and you get eaten. You negotiate with Satan, and you get eaten. You negotiate with a liberal, and you get eaten. And the reason is the same. None of them care about the truth. 
Don't negotiate truth, loyalty, or trustworthiness no matter how good the goal may seem to be. And I think evangelicals do this all the time in politics. Political pragmatism says that this is the only way you're going to win in politics. And my rejoinder is it's better to lose and retain your integrity than win a political battle and totally lose your integrity for life. David was tested here and he lost some capital with his friends and his supporters. By giving Ziba all of Mephibosheth's property without diligent examination of the truth, what happened is he became a statist, and he burned what little trust that he had already regained with his friends and his citizens, and it hugely complicates things in the upcoming chapters. Hugely complicates things. The moment David begins to play the same game that others have been playing, he loses. People of character can't play the game of false uh, uh, loyalty and, and win. They cannot do it. Uh, they're not as good at it as others. God won't let them win uh, that, that way. And I praise the Lord for his faithfulness to this uh, Reformed church leader that I mentioned earlier uh, because he is a true believer. Uh, God would not allow him to continue in self-deception. God made sure that his false loyalty would make him lose. And I believe that God made him lose so that he would gain, he would win eternally. Uh, just this morning, Kathy shared with me a, a devotions where um, Satan's asked Jesus for permission to sift, uh, um, what's his name, Peter, to sift Peter as a, 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 a sieve would sift wheat. And Jesus gave him permission to do that. And Peter gets sifted, and he falls, and he betrays Christ. But what did Jesus say? I will pray for you that you not fail. Now, yes, he failed in the small uh, mini picture, but in the macro picture, that failure made uh, Peter hate his sin so much more that he was able to minister to others, which was the conclusion of what Jesus said after Satan has asked, when you return to me, how does the rest of it go? When you return to me, um, strengthen your brethren. And we can pray that this would happen with this brother of ours. I've grieved all week long. Here's a Reformed Baptist man whom I love, I've admired. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's adultery, you know. Even if he says he didn't go all the way, what he did was, was just horrible. But I would urge you, pray for him. There's no point in beating up on him at this point. Pray for him that God would use this to so restore their relationship within their church and his ministry that he would be able to strengthen his brothers. <clears throat> so let me, let me end by encouraging you to be faithful to your vows. In fact, it might not be a bad idea to pull out your marriage vows and just ask God, Lord, am I just putting in time here Am, am I having a false loyalty to these vows, or am I having true loyalty? Am I entering into them with all my heart? <laughs> it might be worthwhile for you to pull out your membership vows of this church and ask God the same question and say, Lord, am I really being loyal to these covenant vows? Uh, look at the Peacemaker's Pledge. That's part of the vows that everybody takes in the church, and every one of you vows to... Uh, to tithe 10% uh, of your income to the local church. Are you doing that? Are you praying for one another? Do you pray for the leaders? Uh, are you engaging in body life? We've got to be faithful because when we start crumbling in faithfulness on some, of these, uh, on some of these little areas, it grows and grows until the point where we can't even see straight, just like our Reformed uh, brother down south uh, must have had a little by little blinding of his eyes where he could not see straight. So I would encourage you, be faithful uh, to your vows. Now you might think, like Oliver Wendell Holmes thought, that uh, the vows that I took back then, you know, times change, and it's a totally different situation now than it was back then. No, it didn't matter. It did not matter. Your vows have not been changed, and you are engaged in false loyalty if you make any kind of adjustments or pretenses like Oliver Wendell Holmes did 
uh, with the Constitution. Disloyalty impacts us negatively within and spreads within. It defiles all of our character, and disloyalty impacts others around us negatively, and it spreads and it spreads. So if the bear of false loyalty wants to negotiate with you, shoot it, right? If the dandelion of false loyalty springs up in your lawn, pick it up by the roots, and as you throw off the fake, ask Jesus to supernaturally give you what you cannot come up with in your own. A loyalty that will be sustained for all of eternity. And if you've got the Holy Spirit within you, you've got everything you need to have that loyalty. And uh, may it be characterized with all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and the challenges that it brings and the examples of uh, the, the devastation that comes when we fail you. Help us, Father, uh, to avoid the problems that both Ziba and David uh, had in this passage here. Uh, you say in Jude that you are able to keep us from stumbling. We want that, Father. We want to be kept from stumbling. And so we pray that you would keep us faithful and uh, holy and loyal. We love you, and yet we want to grow so much more in our love to you and our love to the brethren. And so we pray that you would strengthen this, your, your people, that you would encourage their hearts, you would build them up in your most holy faith, that you would give them faith to lay hold of the cross, not allow Satan to use discouragement or anything else to make them give up, and help us to, when we stumble, get right back up and being cleansed in the blood of Christ to keep pressing forward. Help us not to be discouraged by lack of perfection, but may we lay hold of that proverb that it is a direction, not perfection. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.